I remember the first stock I bought was a company by the name of Northeast Airlines. And my criteria was, it was the only company I heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. Well, to show you the difference between you and me, about the same time, my exposure to Northeast Airlines was flying from Boston, Massachusetts to Lebanon, New Hampshire, so I could go to Dartmouth College. And my only concern was having them land safely. And <laughs> <laughs> we had some hairy times. The most important principles I learned were also related to my failure in 1982. And that is to know the art and the power of understanding thoughtful disagreement. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Ray Dalio. Ray is a founder, co-investment officer, and co-chairman of Bridgewater Associates, which is a global macro investment firm and is the world's largest hedge fund. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Principles, Life and Work, and his latest book, Changing the World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail, will be released this January. He has written many influential papers on everything from China to populism to debt cycles. He is an avid student of economic history and public policy, an innovator of some industry-changing approaches to investing, an innovative philanthropist, and a deep-sea explorer. Ray, welcome to the podcast. I'm a great admirer of yours, so I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Well, I'm a great admirer of yours, and we're good friends, so I'm especially looking forward to it. Good. So let's start with a young Ray Dalio. When and how did you become interested in economic policy and investing? Well, I was, I was a kid. I used to caddy, and it was in the 60s. And um, I would walk around, and uh, the stock market was hot at the time, and so I got sort of hooked on the stock market and the folks I was catting for, we'd start to talk about stocks and I would take my catting money, I'd put it in the stock market and that's how I got, I got hooked. I remember the first stock I bought was a company by the name of Northeast Airlines. And my criteria was, it was the only company I heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. And my investment theory at the time was, that allows me to buy more shares. So if it goes up, I can make more money. And it turned out that that strategy worked, dumb <laughs> as it was, because what happened is, here's the deal. It was a company that was about to go bankrupt, this airline. I didn't know that. And some other company acquired it, and it tripled in value. So I figured that this game was easy, and I got hooked. Now, I was always into individual stocks. Then later, when I got into high school and then early in college, I wanted to trade commodities because commodities had low margin requirements. And I did that. And um, fast forward then, because I loved it when I graduated high school, went to Harvard Business School in my intervening year, uh, my summer, I went to the director of commodities at Merrill Lynch and I said, 
you know, nobody at that time, by the way, ever went to commodities. Would you, uh, you know, give me a job? And he gave me a job, which gave me a great exposure. And then in 1973, I graduated in 73. In the summer that year, we had the first oil shock. And as uh, luck would have it, I was in commodities. And this Dominic and Dominic wanted to build a commodity division. And I was graduating. And so without much experience, they brought me into commodities. Well, anyway, a long story short, macro then began to drive everything. The printing of money that started in 71 made the inflationary 70s, and it affected commodity prices. It affected everything. And the tightness of monetary policy drove all markets. And so I needed to understand the credit markets. I needed to understand monetary policy. I needed to understand currencies. I needed all that. So it was at that point that to answer your question in this long way, that I got involved then with macroeconomic monetary policy and the like. Well, that's quite impressive to show you the difference between you and me. About the same time, my exposure to Northeast Airlines was flying from Boston, Massachusetts to Lebanon, New Hampshire, so I could go to Dartmouth College. And my only concern was having them land safely. And <laughs> <laughs> we had some hairy times. But in any event, that brings me to my next question. You know, I've always believed that one of the most valuable things anyone can do is create a business. What did it take to create Bridgewater? The biggest obstacles you faced, lessons learned, failures overcome. Give us a few minutes on Bridgewater. Okay, so carrying this forward a bit, went to business school, graduated, traded markets, and then got a job as director of commodities at Dominic and Dominic. That was in, as I say, 73. The oil shock comes along, commodities goes up, brokerage business, as we know, it goes down. They get into trouble, go to Shearson Hayden Stone to continue to do that thing. Didn't fit well in a company, in the bureaucracy or whatever. I mean, I was sort of my own guy. And then in 73, I then set up Bridgewater. And what it was is not me doing anything. Uh, I got fired from Dominic and Dominic because um, I punched my boss when we got drunk on New Year's Eve and things like that anyway. So I was uh, uh, a bit rowdy. And I, um, anyway, there were Shearson clients who loved working with me and they would pay me money uh, for giving them advice. And so I was at a two bedroom apartment and my roommate in the other bedroom moved out and I made that my little office. And that's what I started to do while I was trading my um, account. So I never thought of it as a business. I thought about it as things that I wanted to do. And then you, you, you acquire the things you need to do it, and that became a business. So you work with certain people, and then you buy a computer and so on, and you call it a name, and that was the business. But I had a passion to do this thing. So I built this little business, and I don't know, maybe there was a dozen people or so, and I'll take it to my failure that changed my life. So in 1980, 1979, 80, 81, if you remember it well, because it was as turbulent as, as they get, including now, um, there was the tightness of monetary policy. 
Paul Volcker gets appointed, August 1979. Uh, inflation is out of control. People were walking around with win buttons, whip inflation now buttons. And the question is, is money as we know it going to even exist? And there was that inflation and Paul Volcker put on the crushing monetary policy. I had calculated that American banks had lent much more money to foreign countries than those countries, developing countries, that, that those countries were going to pay back. And I um, calculated and was public and it was controversial that we were going to have a big debt to debt crisis, a big default. And then um, in uh, August 1982, Mexico defaulted. And, um, and then a series of countries defaulted. And I got attention on that. And, um, and so, but I thought we were gonna go into a, a depression or terrible conditions, and I couldn't have been more wrong. That was the exact bottom in the stock market because of how the Federal Reserve was able to lower interest rates and, and operate in that way. And I, I thought the lowering of interest rates was gonna bring back inflation, but because foreign countries, uh, developing countries were being squeezed with their debts, it didn't happen. I won't get into the mechanics, but I couldn't have been more wrong. It was the exact bottom in the stock market and a bull market. I lost money for me. I lost money for my clients. Um, and I had to let everybody go. And I was, it was down to me. And I had to decide at that point, very painful experience. I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help to pay for family bills. I mean, that's where I was. And I had to decide, am I going to get a job or, or not put on a tie, go to Wall Street and whatever. I, and I couldn't bring myself quite to do that. But it was the most painful, one of the most painful experiences of my life. And one of the most valuable experiences of my life because it changed my whole behavior to decision-making. It made me think, how do I know I'm not wrong? The fear of being wrong, how do I have those opportunities and place those bets in a way where I don't give up my opportunity? And I realized that what I really needed to do to, to improve my chances of being wrong is to sort of get out of my own head a, a bit and have the smartest people I know stress test my thinking to hear what they say so I can take in all of that to learn, which was great, and to know how to diversify well to build the portfolio. And that's what that was the bottom. So at that, that moment, if you go from August 1982 on, what I did is I was able to bring in people, my partners, who also have to be independent decision makers and to work on having this culture. And that culture is one of meaningful work and meaningful relationships in which there's a lot of thoughtful disagreement to get at the right answer. So that is how a transition that became a business. Ray, it's interesting that you made that point because I've worked with a lot of successful leaders in government and in business. And I think the key to the great ones are their ability to have enough self-awareness to get the right people in the right places around them, to surround themselves with the right team that works for them. And you just told a story, I think, that reaffirms that point. Now, I would like to switch gears because you are a student of macroeconomic policies and history all around the world. So you've written a new book 
that will be released in January called The Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. So we've been talking about why people succeed and fail. You've gone a step up. You said, why do nations succeed and fail? So why did you decide to write the book? And what are the big forces that seem to be repeating themselves, which threaten the world order today? Well, what I decided uh, to do, I was doing the research for myself in Bridgewater because I, what I learned through my life is that all the surprises, the big surprises and mistakes I made uh, whenever they occurred were things that didn't happen in my lifetime before, but happened before my lifetime. Like in 1971, I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. August 15th, I remember it very well. Um, Nixon announces that money as we know it is not any longer going to exist and people wouldn't accept money, dollars in Europe. And I went on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where I'm clerking the next day. And I thought the, it was a crisis and I thought the stock market was gonna go down a lot and the stock market went up a lot. And then I said, okay, well, why? And I studied history and I studied devaluations. And I studied that the exact same thing happened on March 5th 1933 with Roosevelt's move. And I understood when you devalue, you reflate, and it has this positive effect on that. So what's happened recently is that I've observed three big things that are going on that haven't happened in our lifetimes. I'll see if you agree that they haven't happened in our lifetimes before and so on, and that they're big, big, big things. And um, so those three big things wanted led me to want to study them in history. And they were they are what's going on with money and credit as you get as you have a zero interest rate. And everybody needs a lot more spending power, the production of a lot of debt that is monetized and directed by the central government to the places it they want it to go, because the capital markets won't get them there in that way. That phenomenon came loud and clear through COVID, but it existed before. And so that leads me to the supply and demand of money and credit. And I realize who gets it and who doesn't get it drives not only the markets, it drives our lives. So that's one. The second factor is the emergence of populism and the wealth gap. So when Donald Trump got elected and there's a lot of populism around the world, uh, that didn't used to happen in developed countries in the same way. And I decided to study the uh, distribution, the deciles. So I took uh, the bottom 60% of the uh, population and I looked at those conditions and so on. And I realized that the wealth gap today is the largest since it was in the 30s. Again, uh, the, the monetary policy I'm talking about, last time that happened, zero interest rates, a lot of monetization, 1930 to 45 period. The wealth gap and the conflicts that we're dealing, last time that happened, 1930 to 45 period. So that factor, we're at each other's throats. We have conflicts primarily over money and wealth, and that defines tax policy. So when we look into the new administration, whatever that may be, uh, we're going to think about those policies. I needed to put that in perspective. And then the third is the rise of a great power to challenging an existing great power. 
the world order that we're in began in 1945. The United States won the war. Basically, it accounted for uh, 50 percent of the world's economy, had 80 percent of the gold. Gold was money. And so we built a dollar based and U.S. based uh, order. And now we're in a position where uh, the Soviet Union was never economically comparable rival. They had nuclear power, but not the same. And so we're now seeing every day that rivalry. And as you know, like me, me like you, we'll go there and we know the people, uh, makes decisions and so on and so forth. And so by being able to see that, we perceive changes pertaining to that. So those are the three factors of our lifetime, which then said, I need to go back and find out what determines a reserve currency and not. So I went back 500 years because I needed the cycles. It used to be the Dutch empire, the British empire and the American empire and so on. And that's what I did. So, and I wanted to share it. The reason I wanted to share it was I'm now at a stage of my life. I'm 71 and my notion at this moment, and I'll do this for maybe a year or two more, is to pass along the things that I found valuable to other people for them to take or leave as they like. And Ray, you've dug deeper. When you've looked at uh, cycles and history and the, the, the economics and the policy behind it, you've done deeper than anybody I know. So I'd like to follow up on your three points. So let's start first on your point about monetary policy. To what extent is our current monetary policy in the wake of COVID-19, and, and you said it goes back before then, which it has, threatening the dollar status as a reserve currency. And what is the U.S. going to need to do for the dollar to remain the global reserve currency? Let's go back to sort of basics. Uh, for every individual, for every company, for every government, uh, over a period of time, you have to earn more than you spend, and you have a, a balance sheet. There's an income statement and a balance sheet. When one becomes a reserve currency, others want to save in that, and that gives one the exorbitant privilege of being able to borrow in that and to create debt and money, because that's the thing. And it also gives us powers, like a lot of our sanctions come from the dollars being a reserve currency and so on. However, through history, it has always happened that currencies are devalued or destroyed. And in that cycle, when it becomes unattractive to own bonds or debt instruments in that currency, there's a supply-demand problem because a bond is a promise to receive currency. So what you are is when you own a bond, you're long a lot of currency because that's what they promise to give you and they have the printing press. And then there are shifts that happen. Who uh, is accounting for world trade? Right now, China counts a, a larger share of world trade than the United States, for example. So what we are doing is we are in a fiat monetary system in which we are running very large deficits that we are monetizing and that those deficits produce bonds that have to be sold. When, when I look at the supply and demand for those bonds, I know who the buyers are. You know, there are a limited number of really big buyers. And so I look at their portfolios and so on, calculate what that is. There's not going to be enough demand for those bonds. And there's going to be a need for more monetization of that debt. 
And so the answer is, uh, yes, we're, we're producing a change in the storehold of wealth. And you've seen it in the markets because when, just think of it in a mechanistic sense, when there was that stimulation and the buying, what the Federal Reserve did in terms of buying that assets, there was not only the decline in real interest rates, we had you know about 150 basis points decline in real rates and nominal rates down there. So the discount rate uh, was lowered. You also had a lot of liquidity which came in and the world now has an enormous amount of liquidity bidding for financial assets. And so if you increase the supply of bonds and you increase the amount of money, bonds are going to be worth less relative to other things. And you're seeing a shift in the storehold of wealth. And like the 1933 period, when Roosevelt did the same moves in 1933, you then saw assets rise because they're alternative storeholds of the wealth. That's what we saw in terms of the liquidity move that we've happened in market, also included in gold and so on. And so that's how it looks to me in terms of uh, the comparison. And certainly, uh, we're now in a new era. We're in a new era. So it is, anyway, I'll, the answer is we are pressing the limits of that. And that money, at the end of the day, whoever's accepting that reserve currency has got to believe in it. And there are things that are going on in terms of how we're handling COVID. And also, uh, let's just think about capital flows. China is becoming an effective place to invest money. Uh, something like 40%, over 40% of the IPOs are going to be Chinese stocks on Chinese markets and so on. And capital flows uh, work that way. And history has shown us that when there's um, an empire, an emerging empire, the fin they build the financial markets, they build the financial system. So Amsterdam was the world's financial center during the empire when there was the um, Dutch Gilder. London was the financial center in the British Empire. U.S., uh, we had New York. And so we're seeing that merge. And all of that changes the supply and the demand that is threatening to the reserve currency status. And I assume you also believe that unless we do something with our structural deficit, unless we start borrowing less and dealing with some of these uh, big fiscal outflows, the, the dollar reserve currency status is threatened, right? Yes, and uh, but also what you're saying isn't easy. Just imagine it's a state, okay? The state of Connecticut, the state of Illinois, and so on, and you can't print the money. That means you either have to raise taxes or cut spending. And history has shown in these empires, all that, that that causes civil wars. That causes great conflicts because those who are being taxed, taxes has raising taxes and or cutting spending has been all through these empires. And I've studied, I don't know how many over a long period of time, the number one reason that you have civil wars. So yes, it's easy to say we have to earn more than we spend and so on. But in this environment, in this highly fragmented environment, how are we going to get there? I couldn't agree with you more. I've always said, when I, when I went to Washington, I said, there is no low-hanging fruit. Things are either analytically simple like this, but then they're politically complex, 
and some are analytically complex and politically complex. So I want to dig deeper on income disparity, which as you just pointed out, is such a divisive source and is driving populism, protectionism, and nationalism. How do you see this playing out? And what do we need to do in America to reform capitalism so that more people can participate in the success? Because I know you've been thinking and working about this problem for some time. So talk a bit about it. Well, yeah, there's the mechanical aspects of it. I think it starts off with what is the goal? What is the dream? And is our system achieving that dream? And when you and I were growing up, there was American dream. And I think you would maybe we would say it would be something like equal opportunity. I know I benefited from equal opportunity. I could get a good education, my parents cared, and so on. And then you could have metrics to say, are you achieving that goal? And you hold yourself accountable to the metrics and you have togetherness in facing that goal. In, in my years, you know, in the 60s and, and so on, there was the pulling together, we did a space program. Okay, so I believe that there have to be knowledgeable people, skillful people who in a bipartisan way move things along to doing sensible things that raise productivity and you have to broaden that base and that's an engineering exercise. Yeah, yeah. Ray, you know, as I look at it, you and I wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we didn't believe in the American dream. And so I think what we're going to have to do is it is going to take great leadership to get out of this. And uh, it's a real challenge, which I want to bring us, you know, so you and I, we're, we're talking about challenges today, but I want to just take a couple of minutes and dig a little bit deeper with China. Now, you, you explained that history shows when you've got an established power and a rising power, you almost always come to conflict, right? So... How do you see this playing out? And maybe even more importantly, what are U.S. policymakers currently getting wrong about China? And what's the right path forward for the United States? Maybe a path that's hard to take, but what are we getting wrong and what's the right path forward? Well, certain things flash through my mind very quickly. First of all, there are five types of conflict, trade war, technology war, geopolitical war, particularly in the region a capital war, and a, certainly a military competition that could also be a military war. The path to the future is to just recognize something like the prisoner's dilemma. Now, we live inter-country inter relationships are ones in which there's not a global court you go to for a resolution of things. And as a result, everybody is testing each other's power and testing the limits. And so there are a lot of risks here over time. That's what brings about wars because you're forced to either kind of retreat or fight and that kind of thing. So that is the dynamic. And on this prisoner's dilemma, it's, well, you know, the prisoner's dilemma sort of is, it, let's imagine that you are dealing with another party who could either kill you or you can cooperate with, and you don't know what they're going to do. And they're in the same situation. They don't know if, they're, if you're gonna kill them or you're going to cooperate. 
Now, what would the sensible thing be to do? It would be to kill them as quickly as you could. And the reason that's not a good outcome, but if you want to keep yourself alive and you don't know whether they can or can't, you have to operate like I don't, it's, I can't take the chance and so on. So there's by nature, there is a certain dynamic that happens that is a scary dynamic. Now, the only path I would think that would be forward is if everybody recognizes that path and then um, the parties and think about what are the particular risks of each one of these points and how do you negotiate that so that I could be assured that um, and we could have a scenario in our mind with red lines of what that what those red lines are and what the necessity is so that we can get through this uh, together recognizing that if we don't it'll be disastrous for everybody so that fear of disaster and that necessity would would, would have to bring that uh, about so almost like can we recognize that fighting whether it's internal fighting and that then brings us to also the other thing we need to do is we as a, a country need to be as strong as we can be. So our position in that negotiation is more than anything going to be determined by what we do internally and our strength. Will we have a good education system? Will we have um, pr productivity? Do we work well together and so on? So the internal order question and the external order question sort of go together. And, and, you know, and we're, yeah, we're in a difficult position, but I think that's what needs to be done. Yep. And I know you are also a big believer in talking, dialogue. You've spent so much time understanding, mutual understanding, building confidence, etc. Now, I want to now finish up with a question about your last book which incidentally I, I thought, and I know a lot of other people think is absolutely terrific. So that's principles. And that was an excellent summation of your approach to life. The principles you lay out are practical, easy to understand and apply. So let me close here by asking you to reflect on what are the most important principles you think individuals and businesses should keep in mind as we try to work our way out of this very difficult period for our nation and work our way out of this geopolitical turbulence? Well, the most important principles I learned were also related to my failure in 1982. And that is to know the art and the power of understanding thoughtful disagreement and to have a process of going through that disagreement that also is like a legal process or something that allows a resolution of a disagreement, protocols or ways to get to the right answer and then get the disagreement behind us and then to move on with that decision. I have a, a, you know, a principle that when people care more about the cause than they are behind, than the system, the system is in jeopardy. I think we could be there and so that art of thoughtful disagreement that you may not have the best answer and that you have to work it out collectively in a way in a system that you believe in to get to the right answer would be 
uh, the most important. My other principles would be about things like the benefits of things that we think are bad things. Uh, this is because the second order consequences are often opposite the first order consequences. And what I mean by that is the benefits of mistakes, that we're all human, that we're all gonna make mistakes. Those mistakes are gonna be painful and yet they're the best things for us if we make the most out of those mistakes to learn. That is, a, you know, that's a big principle of mine. Um, and that pain, I have expression pain plus reflection equals progress. And so if, if you use that pain as a cue and so on, I think that those would be the thing. Understand how to produce win-win relationships rather than lose-lose relationships. Um, that's important. And so I think it's those, uh, the, to answer your question, I think it'll be whether those principles can be deployed in this environment um, that will allow us to get through it smartly and in a bipartisan way and feel really good about that or whether we're going to you know basically kill each other in that process whether that's domestic conflict or whether it's international conflict. Ray, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it's interesting. I left Washington with, you know, two principles myself. And first was, I had no use for ideologues. Those that said, I know I'm right, it's my way or the highway, couldn't get together and compromise. And so that is more or less your first principle. And the second one is, I think what has traditionally made America great is when there was a problem, we had transparency, we shone a bright light on it, we investigated it, and then we moved to clean it up. And it was a messy process, but we've done that in our history. And so yeah. we, we, we've got to do it again. Yes. We, we, we've got to do it again. So, Ray, we've talked about a lot of realistic sounding, but fairly dark potential outcomes here. What is it that gives you hope? You know, I know you wouldn't be working as hard on all these issues you are if you weren't an optimist at, at heart. So what gives you hope? Like human inventiveness. And if you look at through history, everybody's gone through these transitions in various ways. And then the adaptability and the inventiveness that humans have is a fabulous asset. And sometimes these conflicts, maybe, you know, they can come and go. So the test, as I mentioned, is can we rise to that higher level? That'll be our test. But the capacity, we have a lot of resources. The world has never been more inventive in producing things more efficiently. And it has a tremendous capacity with technology and so on to learn and produce breakthroughs and so on so that it can be fabulous and we will adapt the only question is what we do in the intervening period if we're going to fight or whether we can adapt so i think we can do that and the reason i'm trying to communicate openly about these things is i think if we all agree on what it would be the things like we don't want that one and we really do want this and we want to cooperate we have the capacity to do that. It's in our hands, in a democracy, in a situation, if we behave properly and so on, 
we can make wonderful things happen. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. And I, I'd say the other thing that gives me some hope that's related to that is whenever you're in the midst of a crisis, it always looks more formidable because you're not looking out the other side. You don't know what the outcome is. So when you, but now when we look back at history and we can imagine what it must have been like, you know, during World War I or in the midst of the Great Depression or in the midst of World War II. And at that time, you know, people couldn't look, they didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so one of the things that gives me hope is your thought that we will adapt we don't know how we will adapt. We don't know how much pain. I look at it and say we're going to adapt. The only question is when and how much pain we're going to go through before we adapt, right? That's, that's certainly the case. By the way, all of the book, I'm making it publicly available now as I'm writing it. It's on LinkedIn if anybody wants to read it. And what it does, interestingly, is it takes you through each one of those times. It takes you through World War Two or World War One or these times, and it lets you see actually what it was like in those times, and the analogous situations that existed then and now pop loudly and clearly. Like you know when we had the economic war with Japan, because they needed economic resources and we cut off the oil and then their money and so on. Very interesting to go back into those times and see these patterns occur over and over again. So if anybody wants to listen to, to read it, it's available on LinkedIn. And, you know, has there ever been a situation in history when you're, <laughs> when you're looking, I'm sure there have been plenty, when you're looking at a, the uncertain outcome, a lot of uncertain outcomes in the election, but where you've got a president, you know, fighting against our institution and our systems in the electoral process. But that has happened all over history. Yeah. Because just the one thing that's interesting is systems build themselves up. They naturally produce greater wealth gaps for various reasons, because there are winners and losers. And they become rules. And those rules benefit those who are the rulers. So if you go back in history, you see that who had the power? They were the monarchs. They were the nobles. And then what was the asset? Agricultural land. And then when the world started to change, that people could make money other ways and that they didn't benefit, they had to have revolutions to make meaningful enough changes. And so the history wasn't, let's operate within the rules. The history was Let's break down the rules. And then you go through that process. That's why nature has produced civil wars and revolutions because they produce such large changes. And those things are scary, right? And so one who has read history along those lines say, I sure as hell hope that we don't do that. But the real question is, can the rules change enough so that actually you don't need a civil war or revolution. That's how it looks to me, and I worry about that. It's interesting. When I studied the French Revolution, you take it and everybody was pretty reasonable, and they were arguing even through, and, and the Russian Revolution was the same, and so on, you'd say moderate, people looking quite like the people today. And then a line was crossed, and the line 
in all of these cases, by the way, the same is true of the Chinese revolution. When the line got crossed, which means it was win at all cost and play dirty, then you went to something else. And it meant even eradicating parts of the population that could be enemies. So I'm not saying we're going to go there. The great thing so far is democracy is helped. But if democracy is threatened, if you had something like people taking to the streets in questioning democracy and so on, the power of uprisings and demonstrations and so on just could cause something like that. I'm not going to say it's going to happen, but to be aware of it, like in the markets or in something, I always have a thing that I say, well, this can't happen. So if that line is crossed, I view that as a trigger to say, okay, we're now in another domain. So it's good to have that trigger because you'd say, I never will imagine that people will be in the streets fighting for as to how the system was. Yet that happened in, in Germany. Four democracies in the 1930s turned into autocracies because of disorder and the need to, for strong powers to gain order. So it's something to pay attention to. We, we think it can't happen here. They all thought it couldn't happen there. Just know where the line is. And so when that line, if that line should be crossed, you know you're crossing it. Yep, well said. So Ray, thank you. You've given us a lot to think about and I really look forward to the release of your new book. Well, thank you, Hank. I love always speaking with you, and thank you for your time. It's a delight. Thanks. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.